Hello, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Comics Experience Make Comics Podcast, the show where we talk about the nuts and bolts of making comics. My name is Joey Grow. I am joining Andy Schmidt. And today we are talking about uh, not something necessarily tied directly to how you can make comics, but uh, very much tied to how you can make comics. Uh, as of our recording, there are two figures in comics that have recently died, uh, Neil Adams and George Perez. And in general, that's something that could warrant uh, speaking about and, and what they contributed, not just in terms of art and story, but also in terms of creator rights humanity, doing your own thing, doing your own comics. But Andy, you've actually worked with both George and Neil in different capacities. Uh, yes. Uh, I would not go so far as to say that I am, you know, good friends or was good friends with either of them. But, um, uh, yes, I worked with George on, uh, I worked on some projects that George did without George knowing it because I had <laughs> communication with him. Uh, like when I was an intern in 1997, um, but, uh, but then later as an editor at Marvel, I was an assistant editor on, um, JLA Avengers. Um, and then, uh, you know, I would email with him every once in a while, usually work related stuff. It's not like, again, you know, I don't want to like overstate this, you know, like, like he and I were tight. Um, he was, uh, legitimately friends with my boss, Tom Brevoort at Marvel. And so when there was, you know, a project, it was usually Tom, I was talking with him i was you know giving color notes and and you know things of things of that nature you know generally over email spoke with him a few times on the phone he came into the office one time um george was the first artist whose work i fell in love with um as a kid and i realized i just did this math now when i realized you know how old he was he was 67 uh when he passed away last week um and i realized that like I was 10 and I was like this massive fan of somebody that was like maybe in their early thirties, <laughs> like, which just strikes me as weird. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm older, significantly older now than he was when I was following, trying to scoop up anything that he worked on. Um, but, but now but you anyway, also have yeah. the buying power to maybe do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hopefully. Sure. Um, so, yeah. So, I mean, so I don't want to, again, I don't want to overstate it. I was involved in projects. Certainly he and I had multiple, multiple conversations when I met him in the office. And this is kind of one of those funny stories. I'd been at Marvel for a while, um, for less than a year, but long enough that like, I didn't, I knew how to play things cool when somebody I really, really liked, you know, or was admired their work for, you know, a decade or more would come in. I could, I could play it cool. Not when George walked into the office, I let out a, sort of noise and um and that was it that was, that was all i said to him <laughs> uh later i saw him at a convention and I, I mentioned it and um you know reintroduced myself to him like it had been a while at that point and he was gracious enough to have forgotten that he did kind of laugh at the time like i know he noticed like he did kind of like laugh in sort of like a playful way um he was, he was a hard guy to miss he was pretty tall he had a uh, he always had these like really bright shirts on and stuff um so I did later at a convention talk to him and, and say, like, I just wanted you to know, like, what was happening in my brain at that time, which is to say everything that could happen in my brain <laughs> was happening at that point. Like, and, you know, I got a chance to just say, like, how much is work and it meant. So that's nice. And I, and I was able to do that with Neil. Um, Neil and I worked together. If I remember correctly, I met him at the first San Diego Comic-Con that I went to. I was an assistant editor at Marvel. 
and they sent me one year and um and i met him there and i just started talking to him and asked if he'd be interested in doing anything again at marvel and he was like yeah we could have a conversation so i took his card gave him my card and then followed up with him and much to my surprise he was pretty open to it i wound up with him there was more of a sort of a courting process so for several months i would call continuity studios which is only a few blocks away from our office and hmm. chat with him i'd usually call like at the end of the day it might be 5 5 30 at night something like that and he'd be kind of one of the seemingly i don't i don't actually know for sure if it seemed like he would just be one of the few people kind of still there and we'd wind up having these chats we talked for like half an hour or so um about different things not always about like what would you want to do at marvel but like just about different things i'd ask him about you know, his background, like you mentioned with creator rights and stuff. So I heard a lot of stories directly from Neil. Um, uh, and uh, so that was really, that was really interesting. Again, I want to overstate it. It's not like, it's not like Neil Adams ever called me to ask me for advice on something, you know, like, you know, we were not, I would not say that we were friends, but we were certainly business friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I had some really like, fascinating conversations with him some of them i found i found like really kind of eyebrow raising uh like when he would talk about the the, uh his hollow earth theories he didn't quite convince me that that was that was the the history of the planet earth but Mm -hmm. um but they were they're interesting and you can read about all those online and probably find videos of him talking about it um but he uh yeah i mean he was he was willing to talk that's for sure. And then, and then he did a few covers that I was involved in. Um, so not, not huge, huge works for Marvel. And he and I developed a project that never happened. But, um, uh, I say we developed it, which meant I was the guy that he was talking to. <laughs> um, and I had, I actually, it's kind of unfair to me. I actually I did have a lot of input in it, but it was, uh, it was a specific project we developed for at the time we were doing a line of books at Marvel called the end. Um, so it was like, we did, um, you know, Marvel universe, the end, the Jim Starlin ended the Marvel universe. And we did, uh, the Hulk, the end, I think that was the first one, but Peter David and Dale Keown, it was there. If they were writing the last Hulk story, what would it be? Like that was the whole concept behind that line of books. I don't think they do those at all anymore. In fact, I don't think they've done it for quite a while, but we were going to do an Avengers, the end was the project and Neil had a you know pretty solid idea of what he wanted it to be but you know a lot of the discussion was who else would work on it and that stuff so we actually pulled together a creative team um Brian Bendis uh, was writing Avengers at the time of the disassembled uh area era um Brian was going to co-write it with him and uh, so I had all those conversations with Brian um Nelson DeCastro was going to was going to ink it um, I don't, I don't remember that we got as far as colorist or letter on it, but, and there was a whole proposal, um, and it went in and, uh, it got signed off on and then the schedules didn't align. So it, did, it ultimately wound up not happening, but, um, but you know, that was a process to develop that to, you know, I had to send him all kinds of samples and make sure he was happy with what the inking would look like and all that sort of stuff. So it would have, it would have been, I think both fun and a nightmare to have worked on it. Um, <laughs> what's the nightmare part? Just, uh, you know, I mean, that's a lot of strong personalities, um, you know, and, and Neil was a perfectionist. So, you know, what I wasn't 
particularly looking forward to, and maybe this wouldn't have happened, maybe I'm totally wrong, but you know, is, you know, I get his pencils and then the inks come in and what if he's not happy with the inks, you know, and then that's going to be me having that conversation with whether it's Nelson or somebody else, you know, that's going to, that's going to be me having that conversation with whomever's work, you know, he's not happy with, he would turn in these very elaborate color guides, you know, on the covers that he did and, you know, and he'd check them over and when the, when the color, you know, didn't match exactly what he wanted, you know, he let us know and, you know, that's okay. I mean, that's part of doing, it's part of doing any work is, you know, there's a review process. Like there are notes on things like that happens and that's, that's okay. But, you know, I think there's a chance it would have been a lot of notes. <laughs> right. But that's what happens when you work with somebody that, that has, is a perfectionist and successful, Right. If you're a perfectionist and not successful, then nobody really pays that much attention to it, right? But if you're a perfectionist and you're successful, you've got that weight of being successful behind your your notes, so that your every little note has to be treated like it was like it's a major note, mm-hmm. right? Um, and so, I mean, that's just part of this is part of it. Like, and I was and I was uh, willing, and I think I was up to the task. Surprise, you're going forward to to being the guy that that did that you know they're just that's parts of that project probably would have been really annoying <laughs> but ultimately i think it would have been a great experience and then you know you tend to remember the stuff that's great in a project you know like like that but again we're talking in the abstract about a project that didn't happen right right um yeah well switching gears uh i didn't actually realize you were an assistant editor on jla avengers which you know, my introduction to George Perez was, uh, frankly, I think, seeing covers for Infinite Crisis in different ads in newsstand edition of comics. And, you know, that that striking um, Superman, Supergirl cover, uh, I didn't read and I actually realized that looking back over old Avengers issues, I'd actually read more George Perez earlier on and just didn't realize it was George Perez because I didn't pay attention. You to mean, names. you mean the original, you mean the original crisis, the original crisis, not, not infinite. Crisis. Oh, sorry. Sorry. Original crisis. Infinite not crisis, crisis was like 2000s. Right. Yeah. yeah original yep, crisis yep. from the 1980s. Show, yeah, yeah, yeah. Showing my, uh, my lack of DC reading until the nineties there. <laughs> Uh, consistent DC reading, but you mentioned that you were an assistant editor on JLA Avengers. And, you know, at the time I remember that was a huge deal from the inside, even if you might not be the guy making the the phone calls and sending in all the meetings, what was that like? Um, just in terms of, I don't know, energy, thought, direction, was it something that was <laughs> obviously a lot of work, but Hey, the payoff is check out Superman holding Thor's hammer and cap shield. Yeah. Well, that was one of the key. So I was not there at the very beginning of the project. So I was not there when the project was developed, but when I got hired on like just the very beginning of the first issue. So I, I remember commenting on the first issue script um, and seeing the first pages of art, you know, coming in. So I was on early, but I was not there during, during the whole development process, but you know, I heard the stories well because we, we would sometimes talk about it, and a lot of it's been codified in interviews online and whatnot. Um, but yeah, like when they when they first started talking about doing this, George and Kurt and Tom, I think Dan Raspler was the editor at DC at the time that started the project um, with with Tom at Marvel. Um, uh, one of the first things they did was that it wound up being essentially the cover in the fourth issue of Superman holding 
cap shield and force hammer and they were like well that has to happen <laughs> like that's a thing that has to happen one of the things that was really interesting about that project was because those types of projects those intercompany crossovers are well known for like both companies being like well you can't do that because my character's stronger and like getting right. into those sorts of things and like you know i mean there was definitely conversations about can superman lift thor's hammer you know is he worthy sure um how can somebody from another universe be worthy? Um, you know, and like, can so-and-so break Captain America's shield? You know, and there was all that kind of stuff. And like, can, you know, there's a scene where Superman gets whacked hard by Thor's hammer. And there was the question of like, can you have Thor? Like, does that, is Thor one-upping Superman? And both editorial teams knew that they had to sort of protect the interests of their respective characters and companies, right? Like, I mean, that that it's not like that went away. But I remember being really impressed with how the editorial teams and largely those discussions. I mean, sometimes there was a call, but even on those calls, like the assistant editors didn't really talk all that much. It was usually Tom and and um, and Dan, you know, uh, or Mike Carlin maybe might be on a call every once in a while. Um, I think was Mike on. I know I can't remember if Mike was actually on the call or not. But anyway, you know, there's there's that aspect of it of like sort of protecting and like you can't make our guys look bad, you know. And there was a give and take with it that I really appreciated. So in the case of, you know, Superman getting smacked by Thor's hammer, there had to be a moment later on where Superman did something cool over Thor or something like that. But it became, it was much more organic. Like mm-hmm. if you wanted a moment, we tried to find a way to for Kurt and George to have it. Um, and and so in that sense, the actual the editorial process was actually fairly smooth. Um, I'll I'll take a little bit of a lick um, in that I think it was the issue three script. Uh, myself and somebody else argued um, there was just something in that script, and I don't remember the details of it now that, that wasn't working for us, um, and we kind of won over Tom on it. And the script got rewritten, but it kind of changed what Kurt and George wanted to do, but like what they were going for. And it was something that really made sense to Kurt and George. Um, and we just, it just didn't, we didn't feel like it worked from a story standpoint or something. And ultimately it kind of caused some ripple effects well into issue four as well. And um, I think the ending suffered for, for it. Um, yeah, I think that was, that was a learning experience for me, which, that's great for me, but sort of bad for the rest of the world, I think. Um, in that, uh, you know, one of the things I learned there, like I said, I was fairly new, um, was that sometimes you just need to trust, you know, it, uh, trust your creators. I usually trust my creators, but also like sort of understand like what's their thing. Like in the case of Kurt and George, they're both like superhero, like historians and they were doing a thing that really made sense to them on on a level, and it didn't quite to me. But I should have just—I probably should have just kept my mouth shut and just let them do their thing because it did make sense to them, and they did know why they were doing it, and it played to their strengths. It was the type of thing that they do really well. It played to the history and the like how George's brain organizes when he does one of those giant like group shots. There's a level of organization. It's not just a compositional organization to make sure it looks cool, but like who he pairs with who and 
and who's over here in the bottom right relates to who's in the upper left and it relates to who's in the bottom left and who's in the upper right. Like he mirrors these things and he organizes how he puts these characters and all has to do with their character history or their costuming or, or their whatever. And just, I should have realized that they, they probably knew what they were doing. Didn't need, didn't need 25 year old Andy weighing in. <laughs> the project probably would have been better. Um, better for it but uh like i said live and you learn so there it is sorry i screwed up the end of jla avengers um <laughs> yeah i think if you, if you didn't like the end of it then, uh, then i'll take it clearly you affected the critical and commercial success the uh not the commercial success the, maybe the critical success no no i i, I remember um, it being well reviewed maybe you don't but you got to it sounds like you know multiple multiple uh because because a lot of us you know i I mentioned earlier you walk by a convention you're like holy crap that's neil Neil adams or that's george perez and you know i I got to a point where i i didn't go to conventions with books to get signed or anything so i wasn't standing in line for a lot of folks but you know i would literally stop and look at them which you know that that zoo aspect of conventions can get kind of goofy but in that in that moment it's sort of like what you said upon meeting george perez you're like oh my gosh it's george perez i don't know what to say all the words are coming out all at once there are certain yeah. there are certain people that exist in in comics or popular culture where you're like I can't believe it's that guy there she is and there there's some amount of your brain recognizing somebody that you're familiar with for maybe dozens and dozens of years <laughs> and that you might have loved as a kid but it sounds like you got to have those interactions with Perez and and obviously a bit deeper interactions with uh, Adams and. You know, it's it's interesting to see kind of the, the lineage of comics and different generations, you know, encounter folks at different times. And it seems like those were two figures that always stood out for their contributions, uh, both creative and and just how they did what they did. Um, you know, it's, yeah. it, oh, some industries are like that, but comics especially has an interesting continuity to it because they were still producing art. You know, they were still viable and interacting with readers and doing things in their, you know, their retirement years. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of people know about what Neil did for the industry. Like he was one of the, he was one of the bigger, uh, the bigger names that fought for creator rights and, and produce change. Like he was a big part of, of get making things better. Do we still have work to do? Yeah, we do. Uh, but he made things a lot better. He was, uh, one of the biggest credits is he was really instrumental in getting the original artwork returned to the artists. Um, whereas before the, it was, it was usually frankly destroyed. Yeah. Um, companies would hold on to it for a while and then they would destroy it because they don't need it anymore. They had, you know, they shot the film of it. So they had the film. What do they need the original art for? And he started getting it back, um, which is huge for artists because then they could sell it for a lot in a lot of cases. So, um, and like, why not return it? Like, come on, you're being jerks if you're not returning it. <laughs> so, uh, so he did, you know, he, he, he did a lot within the industry that, you know, you feel today. Um, George was also, um, he was constantly, um, you know, doing things for charity groups. Like he really, he really believed in being good and he was so good with fans. Uh, you know, we were talking before, before you started recording, man, like neither one of us has ever heard a story about him ever losing his patience or losing his cool or being rude, even unintentionally to a fan at a show or online or, or anything. And he just, 
I mean, I don't know if it's more so than any other creator I know, but certainly the vast majority just had a clear joy and appreciation of his own fans that he just, he just loved them. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when he got the, or when he made public the his cancer, terminal di- cancer diagnosis, he, I mean, I just can't imagine, you know, I'm, I, you know, I think I would be like, I want to spend as much time with my family and my kids as I possibly can. Right. Um, and he did that. Uh, but he also spent time with colleagues. Like I remember just watching on Facebook, made it, made a trip to these offices and hung out with these guys, went to lunch with these people. And then he went to California and he saw Mike Carlin and Jim Lee and all these, you know, all these people he had done a bunch of work with. So he managed to make time for colleagues. He made time for fans. He still went to several shows. He stopped producing art. The thing that the thing that he stopped doing was producing art so that he could spend more personal time with his family, his colleagues, and his fans. Mm-hmm. And that is fascinating to me, and it is so gracious, and it's, uh, um, I don't know if inspiring is the right word. I guess inspiring. But, yeah, I mean, he was just, by by all accounts, and certainly from my, inter- my own interactions, he was just warm and wonderful, as well as an artist that changed a generation. Like, no, so few artists understand comics, and specifically, in his case, superhero comics, the way that he does. You know, I think I have said on probably on the show before that John Romita Jr. seems like he was genetically bred to be a comic book storyteller, <laughs> which, which seems true. And uh, uh, he does have the genes, right, uh, from, from Romita Sr. But, uh, but George is the same sort of way. Uh, I'm talking about the way that he would organize things like if you ever look at any of the posters that he did um so my one of my most prized possessions I'm, I'm not a particularly sentimental person in terms of things um i got about three things in my house that if they went up in smoke i'd be upset um uh one is a globe a pre-world war ii globe for my grandparents um the second one is a a spider-man table that was the first convention table of any marvel um, convention booth and there's this spider-man uh, high top that's the, <laughs> the circular emblem of spider-man's face is the table um only two were ever made nobody knows what happened to the other one but uh somehow i wound up with this one somehow um, i mean I, I bought it i mean i bought it from marvel that's how i wound up with it it's not really a mystery um but uh but that one because it is like just such a rare thing and you know whatever and then the third one is a new Teen Titans poster that George did um, that I got when I was, I don't know how old I was when it came out, but I was fairly young. Mm. And it is the most beaten up thing on earth. I mean, it's got, it literally has holes in the middle of it where, you know, my brothers and I were wrestling and slammed into it and it punched a hole right in the middle of the poster. Like, you know, it's torn, its edges are all frayed and whatever, but I can't get rid of it. I can't. Um, and hung on my wall for years and I would just stare at it. And again, it's that organization, you know, like, um, you know, on one side of it, you see, uh, you know, Blackfire's face on the opposite side facing is, is Trigon or Trigon or whatever he's called nowadays. Um, 
you know, um, the way the characters are arranged are arranged in, in very specific ways. Deathstroke mirrors Brotherhood of Evil. And like, it just, it all makes such perfect sense in George's mind. And then when I look at it, I, it take, like, I get lost in the like, oh, well, he's got these two mirroring each other. And all of a sudden, I used to do this. And it's like looking at a history of that comic book mm-hmm. for the first, like, three years of that book. Um, and it's, and on top of that, it's just so detailed and it's so gorgeous and beautiful and, and everything else that like, I still just get, I just get lost. Uh, I just get lost in it. And I always got lost in his artwork. And, you know, when, when he, when he did crisis on infinite errors, which was a really interesting book uh, and entertaining, but like, I would just get lost in the art. I mean, it'd take me hours to read an issue of crisis on infinite errors. Cause I just wind up looking at the pages and look at, I mean, at this point, like I know the story and I can, so it doesn't really matter if I just sit and linger on a page or two for a while. Um, you know, so he's, oh, he's weird for me because I didn't understand what he meant, what his work meant to me. Uh, until late, like, obviously I was a fan. I mean, I lost all rational thought. Uh, when I met him, but like, I, even then I didn't really, re- I didn't really fully comprehend why I was having that reaction and then getting to know what a, what a warm human he was afterwards. Like he just, he's, he's one of those, like he's one of the greatest. I put him on a pedestal and he never fell off. Um, not even a little, he never even lost his balance and regained it. Like he was always that guy, as far as I know. Um, and, uh, yeah, I just, I just, I mean, it's been, it's been a little while and it's just, it's still, still just sticks in my brain right now that he's, that he's gone. And they're both two comics creators that you could devote um, as many episodes of a podcast that, that you could think of topics related to them or, you know, do a, an academic deep dive or just a, hey, we're going to read this Neil Adams run or this George Perez run issue by issue. And you could look at it from a, an academic standpoint. You could look at it from, a, hey, these are really fun comics or, hey, this is what would be different about comics made in 1983 and comics made now. There's so many ways that you could approach that that legacy that they had that you could look back at, you know, from the start to the finish and see who they were as far as storytellers go too. You know, it's it's funny that you're talking about seeing posts on face, Facebook and, and social media. It just it lights up, and it's it's sad in the sense that people are, ex, you know, this person that contributed to their, you know, their reading, their childhood, somebody that they worked with professionally, somebody that they always loved seeing at conventions, somebody that they worked directly for, and it's it's that thing where there's some comfort. Uh, and I, I hope it's comfort to their friends and family that you see so many stories that so many people are able to share so many different moments and talk about how they were impacted and talk about, you know, tell the funny stories, tell the sad stories, tell the story where they went out of their way to do something great or, hey, you got to charge $20 for a signature. You know, there's it's it's really, you know, for, for what it's worth, it's really uh, it's just a nice comfort food to go back and look through and, and see how folks interacted with them and what, yeah. what their takeaways were. So to hear what you did professionally, as well as getting to know a little bit personally, or as you called it, business friendly, 
you know, it's it's really it's a, a nice experience that you're able to share. And we, you mentioned Denny O'Neill before we started recording that we did something similar when Denny O'Neill died. And he had a, you know, pretty sizable impact on you as an editor yeah. and in getting into comics. And that's an episode if you haven't listened to, you can go back through the archives. But it's it's funny how many people get touched by different creators at different times in their careers that you start to see how the tree branches branch off. Yeah. And the, I mean, I think the other thing that's, that's kind of interesting about that too, is the creators that even those that entered the industry, you know, five, maybe, maybe five years or so ahead of me, like, even though they may be very influential, like Bendis is a, Bendis is a good example. I wound up working with Bendis a lot when I was at Marvel. I love them. Love them. I think it was, I think his work compound is tremendous. Um, but I don't, I don't, I didn't have that as a kid looking mm-hmm. up to him. Right. Thing. Right. I mean, we're not peers. He definitely broke in and was working in comics long before I was. Right. But, um, but there is sort of, you know, that, that, that distance, you know, that, that George was a generation ahead of me. Um, you know, Klaus Jansen, who means the world to me, I, I love him. You know, he's a generation ahead of me. Right. Um, uh, Denny, obviously, also, and and um, so I just, uh, but there is a thing, like I, you know, I kind of on the, our private message boards on the workshop, I was sort of mentioning that, like, really, there's there's not that many people left that are, I think are likely to hit me uh, the way that, that that this did. I could be wrong. I was I, I was a little taken back by how hard the news of George passing, especially since I knew he had terminal cancer and was, thought I was kind of prepared for this coming to whatever extent that I could be. And it just, it's still just, uh, yeah, just really well, I think hit hard. And, and yeah, it's just, uh, but it is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just looking back on what he did, looking back on what Neil did. Um, then thinking about things, you know, about creators that are still here. I mean, you can, if you want to hear stories about how, people aren't great. You can usually find them, but there are plenty of creators who are still around who did great things. And, and the legacy is this, is this very strange thing, right? I mean, and, and we want to get in conversations like this, like fairly regularly, like, um, you know, what is a legacy? How do you prepare a legacy? And, you know, I've reached a point where I don't think I have anything to do with whatever legacy to whatever degree that I leave behind. I mean, I imagine my legacy is largely going to be in my own family, not sure. discussed publicly a whole lot. But, sure. um, but you know, like the, I guess your legacy isn't for you to decide, right? I mean, you do the things that you think you should think you think are right. And in George's case, he contributed a lot of charities. He was super great with all the fans and he was an artist that never quit and never stopped trying to get better and challenge himself. That's a great legacy. Please. Yep. Um, you know, and in Neil's case, you know, legacy is for creator rights and for being the guy that defined Batman for a generation or maybe more than a generation. But right. it's interesting between those two guys and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez, those three guys define pretty much every DC character except for the ones Kirby made. You know, the new gods Kirby defines for me. But, but Perez and Jose Luis Garcia Lopez and Neil Adams define the rest of them. To this day, when I think of Superman, I think of Neil and George and Jose as Superman. 
And that's the Superman that I see. It's always one of those three guys is the first one that comes to mind. You know, for the Teen Titans, that's George, right? For most of the DC universe, it's George because he did Crisis, and that was sort of my introduction to most of the DC universe. But for Justice League, it's George um, and Jose. Like, yeah. You know, for, for Batman, it's Neil because of the cape. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's just... Uh, it's it's fascinating to me to, to look and go like oh like that those three three guys and again Kirby on sort of his corner of the DC universe um those three guys really define the entirety of DC universe even to this day Ivan Rice whose work I love I love Ivan's work but I still see it as an extension of George and Jose hmm. you know it's just yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's there's a lot of different ways to, to look at it, not just uh, in terms of of your own career, but also in, in terms of your life. And it's funny the the touchstones that we have as as kids that you later on get to meet some of those touchstones, <laughs> or interact with them, and see that yeah. they're they're awesome people or that they're complicated people, and uh, as well as you can still have those those memories. And that's you know. COVID times, I don't know how many people are going out to conventions, especially some older creators uh, may or may not be just due to the possibility of, of catching COVID. You can't, I, I couldn't go to a comic convention and not come home at least feeling a little tired, if not catching a cold or something else. So I understand people not going. So if you can't see somebody in person, you can always contact them on social media or, or through a website and, you know, give them a, hey, I really love your comics, or it doesn't necessarily have to be anything more than that. I think that that still means a lot to folks. And you mentioned uh, George Perez's involvement with the Hero Initiative. That's that's a great charity, if you've never looked into it, that is set up to help comics creators that maybe they are not going to make a mortgage payment that month. Maybe they need help relocating to assisted living. Uh, but it's a, a nonprofit that's set up to help comics creators that may not have had the, the funds from when they were producing comics in their 30s that are in their 60s and 70s now, they may not have uh, retirement savings or they may, you know, have a tornado hit. Any Anything can happen. It's Hero Initiative. If you've never checked it out, it's a good charity to look into. And they also offer all kinds of awesome stuff that you can buy that is produced by great comics folks. Um, and Yeah, uh, it raises is, money for those causes. Yeah, they, they've done a ton. You know, and they, they've done a ton that people don't hear about. I'm sure. Um, that you know that I'm only aware of because I happened to be working at Marvel or at IDW when one of those creators was was helped and um, you know they do publicize what they do but they've done some really really wonderful people uh, wonderful things for wonderful people um, yeah it's a great it's a great uh, thing and and if you're feeling inspired to uh, to do something in George's honor making a donation to the Heroes Initiative uh, you could do worse than that. Absolutely. And if, if you're looking to make comics, they act, they keep a, an updated list of comics creators looking for work. So you can go and, and check out who there might be available for inks or pencils or covers or coloring or lettering. It's a, it's a neat thing that they have that I don't know how much they publicize that, but there's a... I didn't even know about that. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. You should, you should check it out, especially for what you all do on the creative services end. Maybe there's a good connection there. It's a, yeah. a, a pretty neat, neat section of that website. So, all right. Well, this is a little atypical of the episodes that we usually do, but I'm, I'm glad that you were able to share your memories of working with uh, and interacting with both Neil Adams and George Perez. It's an unfortunate reason to, to have it as a topic, but 
It's uh, you know, the last week has been a, I mean, that's for the last two weeks has been such a, uh, it's been out there in, in the zeitgeist. So uh, I'm glad we had a chance to talk about it on the show. Yeah. Thanks, Joey. Yeah, absolutely. Well, until next time, go tell the people who make the comics you love that you love those comics and keep making comics. <laughs>